Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Simply Spiked Peach. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a chocolate martini, and on this week's episode, we're looking at the infamous Rajneesh movement that committed the United States' first recorded bioterror attack and were the focus of the Netflix series Wild Wild Country. The Rajneesh movement was started in the 1960s by Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Rajneesh was born Chandra Mohan Jain, the eldest of 11 children of a cloth merchant at his maternal grandparents' house in Kuchwada, India on December 11, 1931. He studied philosophy at the University of Jabalpur, earning a BA in 1955, and he began teaching there in 1957 after earning his master's. And at the age of 21, he had an intense spiritual awakening, which inspired him and the belief that individual religious experience is the central fact of spiritual life and that such experiences cannot be organized into any single belief system. He spent several years traveling around India speaking about mysticism and Eastern spirituality. In 1966, Rajneesh was forced to resign from his university post and became a guru or spiritual guide and a teacher of meditation. In the late 1960s, he found investors willing to fund a series of meditation retreats and began recruiting followers called neo-sannyasins, who also called themselves Rajneeshis. His philosophy diverged from the traditional view of sannyasis who practice asceticism, avoiding all forms of self-indulgence. Instead, he taught his disciples to live fully without being attached to the world. Rajneesh detailed the basic principles for his neo-sannyasins in a manifesto. Each person, he believed, could find their own way to spiritual enlightenment. He wanted to replace the secular lifestyle of the big cities with a communal pastoral and spiritual way of life. Rajneesh frowned upon the institution of marriage and encouraged the neo-sannyasins to forgo marriage and live together under the principle of free love. He also supported contraception and abortion, wanting to prevent the birth of children in his communes, and because of this, there were very few children living there. The belief in sexual hedonism attracted many to his teachings. Early in his career, he also began to teach that sex was a meditative first step on the path to superconsciousness or enlightenment. He believed that embracing sex is quote-unquote theism and equated quote-unquote atheism with the belief that sexual acts are sinful. Rajneesh aimed to create a quote-unquote new man who would attain inner freedom by first accepting and then surpassing his desires. He considered other religions as failed experiments and believed that his movement was likely to succeed because he claimed that it did not have any dogma that could be criticized. Rajneesh also praised capitalism and consumption, citing that poverty continued to exist in the world only because religions praised poverty. Rajneesh referred to himself as, quote-unquote, the rich man's guru and proudly displayed his wealth. He regularly wore fancy jeweled watches and at one point reportedly owned over 90 Rolls Royces. The Rajneeshis dressed in orange-colored clothing, wore a mala, which is a necklace of 108 beads with a photograph of Rajneesh, and changed their names. The first Westerners came to Rajneesh in the early 1970s, and around this time, Rajneesh adopted the title 
Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Bhagwan is a Hindu term meaning God or Lord. Followers took part in meditation and group therapy sessions. For a time, violence was even allowed in these large group therapy sessions and sexual assaults did occur. Eventually, there were more Western followers than Indian followers. In 1974, Rajneesh founded an ashram in Pune and began to expand his movement across the globe. Rajneesh soon expanded his empire beyond spiritual retreats, building multiple business enterprises and using corporate principles to run them. The Rajneesh movement was thus able to amass a large amount of wealth. Author Hugh B. Urban called the movement a successful business enterprise, saying, quote, it developed an extremely effective and profitable corporate structure, and by the 1980s, the movement had evolved into a complex interlocking network of corporations with an astonishing number of both spiritual and secular businesses worldwide, offering everything from yoga and psychological counseling to cleaning services, end quote. It's estimated that there were about 100,000 sannyasins by 1979. Lewis F. Carter, a sociologist from the Washington State University, estimates that 2,000 sannyasins resided as at Rajneesh Puram. In 1981, Ma Anand Shila, a 31-year-old devout follower from a wealthy family in India who had gone to university in the United States, became Rajneesh's personal assistant and influenced him to move the group to the United States. That same year, the Rajneesh Foundation International purchased a more than 60,000-acre ranch property in isolated Wasco County, Oregon. It is now known that the Rajneesh Foundation owed millions of dollars in back taxes, which likely influenced the move. A select group of followers were secretly told about the move, while the rest remain in Pune, their future uncertain. The property was nicknamed Rajneesh Purim and Rancho Rajneesh and became the center of the movement and its operations. The movement generated millions of dollars every year through various investments and holdings, as well as from donations made by followers. At its height, the ranch was home to thousands of followers and had its own fire and police departments, restaurants, malls, newspaper, an airstrip, and a public transport system. A survey done by the University of Oregon in 1983 showed that the Rajneeshis were predominantly a middle-class group of college-educated whites around the age of 30, the majority of whom were women. Nearly three-quarters of their of those surveyed attributed their decision to become Rajneeshis to their love of Rajneesh or his teachings. 91% stated that they have been looking for more meaning in their lives prior to becoming members. When asked to rate how they felt about their lives as Rajneeshis, 93% stated that they were quote-unquote extremely satisfied or nearly so most of them choosing the top score on a scale of 0 to 8. Only 8% stated that they had been as happy before joining. For many, their routine consisted of a morning dynamic meditation session followed by group breakfast, group transportation, group work, group lunch, and group worship of Rajneesh. As the commune shut down for its daily drive-bys, the ranch had predominantly communal housing, dining, and bathroom 
arrangements. Rajneesh lived alone on the compound in a fenced-in property. Sheila soon became president of Rajneesh Foundation International, managed the commune, and met daily with Rajneesh to discuss business matters. Initially soft-spoken and engaging, Sheila charmed the local ranchers and politicians, even hosting a dance and buying livestock for the vegetarian commune. The land the ashram was built on had been zoned for agricultural purposes, and zoning regulation allowed only six residents. The movement told visiting inspectors that the ranch was a farm compound, but the large number of people on the ranch led to complaints from nearby residents. Sheila even attempted to bribe the environmental group A Thousand Friends of Oregon to move along the formation of their own city. When Rajneesh was told that the non-farm uses of the land should be located in an urban area, the movement started buying up property in the nearby town of Antelope, which at the time had a population of just 40 residents. In 1983, Oregon Attorney General Dave Mayer stated that the city of Rajneesh Purim violated the constitutional separation of church and state because it was directly controlled by the religion and religion's leaders. The Rajneeshis responded by trying to gain more power through taking control of the governance of Wasco County. Since Oregon law allowed anyone who had been in the state for 20 days and intended to stay to register to vote, the Rajneeshis, under Sheila's guidance, traveled across the United States recruiting thousands of homeless people to move to their commune. Representative Wayne H. Fallbush who represented both areas, wanted a special session of the Oregon legislature to be called to change Oregon's voter registration laws to prevent the homeless being brought by the Rajneeshis from voting. Local residents sought to disincorporate the city of Antelope, but the vote failed in part because so many Rajneeshis were now citizens of Antelope. Later, the Rajneeshis took control of the city council. That led to a vote to change the town name to Rajneesh, which escalated tensions between the locals and the Rajneeshis. Rajneesh staunchly stood by Sheila and her decisions, even telling other high-ranking members not to question her. Most Rajneeshis would have been surprised to learn that the guru provided such intimate oversight. They believed he was a spiritual master, a rare enlightened man, untouched by daily events at the ranch. To keep tabs on what was going on inside the guru's compound, Sheila had the place laced with hidden microphones and recording equipment. One bug was placed on a table leg next to his favorite chair. Rajneesh was told it was a panic button. Trusted sannyasins monitored the eavesdropping equipment, reporting information to the commune's top four leaders. Eventually, the chasm between the commune's leaders and the guru's chosen insiders became too much for even him. On a spring evening in 1984, he summoned both sides to his house and in front of them all lectured Sheila. He told her his house, not hers, was the center of the commune. In an attempt to control Wasco County, the Rajneeshis targeted the voting population of the Dales, Oregon, in November 1984. Their plan was to suppress voter turnout on Election Day by causing many of the residents to be too sick to go to the polls. They purchased salmonella bacteria from a medical supply company in Seattle, Washington, and staff cultured it in labs within the commune. In a test run, the Rajneeshis gave two county commissioners glasses of water contaminated with salmonella and tirica. 
They later went to several restaurants in the Dalles and sprayed salmonella in salad dressings and in the salad bars. As a result of the attack, 751 people contracted salmonellosis, resulting in 45 being hospitalized. The Rajneeshis eventually withdrew their candidate from the 1984 ballot. Only 239 of the commune's 7,000 residents voted. Most were not U.S. citizens and could not vote. The outbreak cost local restaurants hundreds of thousands of dollars, and health officials shut down the salad bars of the affected establishments. Officials and investigators from a number of different state and federal agencies investigated the outbreak. Michael Skeels, director of the Oregon State Public Health Lab at the time, said that the incident provoked such a large public health investigation because, quote, it was the largest food-related outbreak in the U.S. in 1984, end quote. In February 1985, Congressman James H. Weaver gave a speech in the United States House of Representatives in which he asserted that the Rajneeshis were involved in the bioterror attack in Oregon. At a series of press conferences in September 1985, Rajneesh accused several of his recently departed lieutenants of involvement in this and other crimes, including the poisoning of Mike Sullivan, a Jefferson County District Attorney, and asked state and federal authorities to investigate his allegations. That same year, a group of seven high-ranking Rajneeshis including Sheila, conspired to assassinate Charles Turner, the then United States Attorney for the District of Oregon, and eight others. Sheila created the group after Turner was appointed to investigate illegal activities within Rajneesh Forum. Catherine Jane Stork volunteered to be the follower who would carry out the assassination and brought guns and suppressors. Stork was known to fellow followers as Ma Shanti Fatra, and was also one of the big three, quote-unquote, big mamas in Rajneesh Forum. Sally Ann Croft, an accountant and the group's chief financial officer, provided money for the purchase of weapons related to the plot. They were able to obtain five guns, though the assassination plot was never carried out and was only discovered later during the investigation by federal law enforcement led by Turner into the bioterror attack and other illegal activities by the Rodney Purim leadership, including immigration fraud and sham marriages. The investigation revealed two senior Rajneeshis, including Sheila, to be the masterminds behind the attack. In December 1985, 21 followers of Rajneesh were indicted on wiretapping charges and many fled outside the U.S. but were eventually arrested. Sheila served 29 months in a minimum security federal prison for charges related to assault, attempted murder, arson, wiretapping, and the 1984 bioterror attack in the Dales, and moved to Switzerland after her release from prison in 1988. The assassination conspiracy was discovered after Sheila had left the United States, and as of 1999, she was still wanted by federal law enforcement agencies for her role in the plot and risk extradition if she crossed the Swiss border. Switzerland declined an extradition request from the United States and instead tried her in a Swiss court. Sheila was found guilty of, quote, criminal acts preparatory to the commission of murder, end quote, in 1999 and sentenced the time already served. In a 1991 affidavit, Timothy J. Reardon III, lead prosecutor for the United States Department of Justice in the case, stated that Sheila had told members of the murder conspiracy 
that Batwa Sheree Freshnish had personally authorized the quote-unquote necessary murder of specific enemies of the Rashnish commune. Rashnish tried to flee the country, but was apprehended in North Carolina, where he was arrested and subsequently charged with immigration fraud. Rashnish paid a fine of $400,000, agreed to plead guilty to immigration fraud, and was deported from the United States. He agreed to leave the United States and not return unless given permission first from the United States Attorney General. More than 20 countries refused him entry. Subsequently, he returned to India to revive his Puna Ashram. Rashnish was never charged with the more serious crimes planned or committed by his followers. With the departure of Rashnish, the Oregon ranch became a ghost town. It has been estimated that at least $120 million were generated during the movement's time in Oregon, a period when the acquisition of capital, the collection of donations, and legal work were a primary concern. When Rajneesh returned to India, he was essentially deified and became even more successful. As author Hugh Urban said, Rajneesh's followers had succeeded in portraying him as a martyr, promoting the view that the ranch, quote, was crushed from within by the attorney general's office. Like the Marines in Lebanon, the ranch was hit by hardball opposition and driven out, end quote. In 1989, Rajneesh adopted the Buddhist name Osho. He died from heart failure in 1990. The ashram in India, now known as the Osho International Meditation Resort, attracts hundreds of thousands of visitors each year. Osho meditation centers remain active in more than 80 countries. The movement has been governed by the Osho International Foundation after Rajneesh's death. The movement continues to run yoga and meditation programs, including for corporate customers. The resort teaches a variety of spiritual techniques from a broad range of traditions, and it promotes itself as a spiritual oasis, a quote-unquote sacred space for discovering oneself and uniting the desires of body and mind in a beautiful resort environment. According to press reports, prominent visitors have included politicians and media personalities. In 1991, billionaire Dennis R. Washington purchased the land at Rajneeshpuram, and in 1996, he donated it to the Christian youth ministry Young Life, where it is used as a summer camp. The Rajneeshis had a significant effect on religious freedom laws in the United States. In 1990, the state of Oregon denied unemployment benefits to an employee who was fired for violating a state prohibition on the use of peyote, even though the use of the drug was part of a religious ritual. The backlash of the Supreme Court's ruling in Employment Division v. Smith led Congress to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the RFRA, which has been cited by the courts in protecting the religious liberty of closely held corporations like Hobby Lobby and nonprofits like the Little Sisters of the Poor. In 2018, the Rajneeshis were the subject of the Netflix docuseries Wild Wild Country, and the documentary included lots of archival footage, as well as a rare interview with Sheila. Del, what are your thoughts on this group? I mean, on the group as a whole, I definitely think that they're out there in terms of their practices and the fact that they're a pseudo cult, which I know that we're going to talk about a little later. I think that it's very interesting that Rashnish seemingly took all of his favorite elements from like religion and a call and put it together in a way that really benefited him and the type of lifestyle that he wanted to lead. It's one of those things where 
you can definitely see how there could be some benefit to the things that he was teaching, especially when it comes to like yoga and meditation. There's definitely benefits to that. But I think the way he went about it was definitely not conducive to the well-being of those that were followers of his. I think Sheila is a really interesting character. It's rare in situations where we're looking at cults where you see a sort of second in command, you know, like a secondary cult leader. And that's what I feel that Sheila really was. Um, definitely someone who was able to control the direction of the group and the activities that they were doing. She definitely seemed like a brilliant individual who uh, Rajneesh was able to use to further the group's gains. When it comes to the actual attack, it's one of those things where you're like, wait, what? The use salmonella? Like, how do you even go about like planning, getting it? It's one of those situations where I wish I was like a fly on the wall. The first conversation where someone brought this up, like, oh, we're going to go get salmonella and try to make sure that the residents are too sick to go to the pools. Like, it's just wild to think about. Especially when you consider that most of the commune couldn't even vote. So they were doing all of this to suppress the votes of people that really just wanted to live their lives. And it's definitely understandable that they didn't want to be associated or be near or have their town run by individuals who were followers of a cult leader. This is a case where I definitely thought that punishment would have been much higher. You have things like attempted assassinations, poisoning of over 700 people. And it just doesn't seem like the end results really correlate well to that. I will say that I do think it's absolutely ridiculous that Switzerland was just going to say like, oh, well, we don't want to extradite her. We're going to trial, give her her trial in Switzerland. I think that's ridiculous because that's kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth where you're acknowledging that she committed a crime and you're going to have her go through your legal system, which clear from the fact that she was found guilty of what is conspiracy to commit murder right? In U.S. legal speak, right? But she was sentenced to time served already. Instead of, you know, just having her extradited and having her actually go through a trial in the United States and get a fair punishment, they gave her a slap on the wrist uh, for planning to kill someone else. That doesn't seem right to me. And the last thing that I wanted to speak on was the different effects that they had on religious freedom laws. I think that it's interesting because you would think that these type of protection of freedom would have already been a thing. So the fact that it took, you know, a non-traditional religious group to 
for them to actually pass that kind of law is really strange. It's definitely good. I definitely agree with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it's become more relevant in current times than previously. But again, I think it's strange that the religions with the most adherence in the United States hadn't already made sure that that was codified in our laws. What are your thoughts? I agree with everything you had said. Did you see any of Wild Wild Country? I did not. I watched the first few episodes a while ago, and I was really interested in it. I just never finished it. But the amount of footage that they have is really interesting. And I feel like it helps give a perspective into what life was like, both in India and Oregon, if you were a Rajneeshi. And Sheila, too, she... She's a villain, and I feel like she doesn't really come across that way in the documentary, at least at first. You really hear a lot of her backstory about her husband who eventually passed away before I think she really like took control of the Rajneeshis. If anyone wants to know more, watch Wild Wild Country, but also there's like a 20-part like investigative journalism series by a man, I think his name is Les Vates. Zates, and he was a journalist in Oregon, and he was actually one of the people that the Rajneeshis were going to assassinate, I guess, because of his investigative work into them. He has a really, really in-depth look because it's a very, very complex story, like going into the taxes, um, how they were able to obtain the land. It's a really interesting, just all around super interesting and like not super talked about story and group. If you ask me, I definitely see why people were so drawn to Rajneesh. It's, it seems like he was doing something that a lot of people weren't doing during the 1960s, which was a time of like liberation and a lot of tension and like free thinking. So I understand why people were drawn to it. People from truly all over the world were into it. And I, I think it's interesting, but also like a little weird that like there are still followers of him now, even though we know he was doing like very dubious things and he is not as innocent as I think he would like you to believe and some of his followers did believe. And what you said too, it is interesting to see Sheila as like the second in command. And also I think to see a woman in place too, you don't often don't see that with a ton of cults. I feel like we're seeing that more now, but I feel like it was not as common back then. The amount of, like you said, Del, it is crazy that they decided to go with a salmonella outbreak. And what something that gets me is how organized and intelligent they were about some things and how like no one checked their work on other things. Like if they had read into like Oregon law, they would have realized that they wouldn't have been able to have that many people. And all of this would have been avoided. They're really lucky that no one died because of this outbreak. And again, like if they had just thought, okay, well, not everyone in our group is a citizen, so they can't vote. I mean, I guess that's where like some voter fraud comes in too, that they just were thinking they could get away with whatever. But I think it's just fascinating, like the the hierarchy and the planning that went into their group. And then, of course, like we see with all 
cults, if we want to call them that, which we'll get into. It's so fascinating to me, too, how Sheila then started to spy on Rajneesh. There's always just like so much turmoil, what seems like peaceful people. There's always something. I don't know if that that's like well said or if people will understand it, but there's always going to be someone that wants more power. There's going to be someone that tries to like outdo someone else. There's always going to be backstabbing. No matter how peaceful these groups want to be, claim to be, whatever they teach, this always, always happens. And I think that is very interesting. I do agree too with what you said about Switzerland. I mean, she was trying to assassinate people and like some like government officials too not that like if she was just trying to kill like everyday people it should it should also be taken seriously but it was people that were trying to like uphold the law it's just such a a wild story and then yeah hearing about the religious freedom laws that came into effect because of it i would also think more of it would be in place and that's kind of something i wanted to if I had had more time, I'd like to like explore some of that, how else it affected it and what, you know, religious freedom looks like now, because it is always such a like hot button topic. And I think it's, it is really interesting that, like you said, Del, that a group of complete outsiders from a new religion are what like got people talking and thinking about this more so. So like we've kind of talked about, some have disputed whether or not the Rajneesh movement was a cult or a new religion. Based on an article from 1985 in the Oregonian newspaper, quote, Rajneeshism is one of an estimated 2,500 cults or cult-like movements operating in the United States at the time, end quote. The Rajneesh movement started out as non-religious, but then turned into a religious movement with Rajneesh calling it, quote unquote, the only religion. Throughout history, many unconventional groups have asked to be characterized as, quote unquote, new religious movements or something similar instead of being identified by the more negative term cult. So something that people have really looked at with this story of the Rajneeshis in particular is does the word cult signify prejudice against smaller and less familiar religious groups? So I I think that's an interesting question to ask yourself. I don't think there's any like one defining answer, but it's something to get you thinking. The European Parliament and a resolution adopted in May 1984, decided that although governments had no business judging the value of anyone's religious beliefs, they had a duty to protect human rights that were being abused by, quote, certain organizations described as new religious movements, end quote. In the 1970s and 1980s, specialists developed sets of criteria for distinguishing cults from more traditional religions. Dr. John G. Clark Jr., assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, believed the essential difference isn't their professed beliefs, but in how they act toward their members and the rest of society. Clark, who has worked with cult members and former members for over a decade, presented a paper in which he maintained that the more dangerous cults developed closely similar internal characteristics despite vast differences in ideology. And he listed nine characteristics that he said were common to cults. He claimed that 
So we'll talk about just a few of them. He claimed that ruling power is held in, quote, nearly every case by a living and wealthy leader, end quote, who may or may not believe his own doctrines, but who invariably claims, quote, unique magical powers and responsibilities, end quote. Belief systems are, quote, absolutist and non-tolerant of other systems or outsiders, and management is totalitarian through a chosen hierarchy requiring unquestioning obedience, end quote. Supreme importance is given to the cult's goals and activities, causing members to, quote, consider themselves above secular law, which they disregard and break with great abandon, end quote. And little or no importance is given to human rights or personalities. A person exists for the benefit of the cult rather than the other way around. All intimacy and sexuality is controlled and ritualized so that love for another individual is nearly impossible. Adrian B. Greek, director of the Portland Positive Action Center, an established cult counseling and education organization, said he defined a true cult as, quote, an organization that uses deception in some ways in recruiting and presenting itself to the public. It also uses psychological manipulation to create dependence in the individual, end quote. Psychiatrist Mark Gallanter said, quote, the Rajneesh group interests me because I see the situation as potentially explosive. They're very isolated out there. They've become very bizarre. They have a history of people being injured and they've stockpiled guns. How could it not concern anybody? End quote. Many were also concerned about the group's quote-unquote bordering, which occurs when a cult-like group draws a paranoid demarcation between itself and the rest of society. The Rajneeshis had a family structure meant to promote acceptance of a two-caste social system at Rajneeshpuram, described by set leaders as a quote-unquote horizontal hierarchy. Under that system, a worker who cleans toilets is supposedly equal to any supervisor or president of a Rashnishi corporation. Each is doing the guru's work. However, there was a clear difference in lifestyle and any expression of doubt about such double standards is apt to be dismissed as quote-unquote negativity. Robert J. Beatty, a Milwaukee meditation teacher who took interest in the Rajneeshis after visiting the Shri Rajneesh Ashram in Pune, India, said he thought Westerners often were drawn into Eastern-style cults because of widespread spiritual illiteracy. Both Adrian Greek and Helene Zetlin, a social worker who counsels ex-cult members for a Berkeley, California organization known as Options for Personal Transition, suggested that one major way of maintaining control was the Rajneeshi practice of attacking individual ego and creating a quote-unquote group ego or a quote-unquote constructed identity in its place. This was primarily done in group psycho-spiritual sessions. Many former members say it was difficult to leave Rajneesh Forum and difficult to trust others. One former member said he was convinced that Rajneesh could read his thoughts. Another ex-member said trying to explain to an employer why there was a seven-year gap in her resume was difficult, which influenced her decision to stay. Del, do you think the Rajneesh movement is a cult or a religion or something else? What do you think? I think they are the classic 
example of a cult. You have one individual that is using his influence over other people for his own personal gain. I think that the fact that it adds in different elements that may or may not be beneficial to the members are irrelevant. I think that it's interesting that they brought up, well, there may be a negative connotation with the word cult, and so we don't want to use that with new religious movements. But I think it all depends on what the movement is. Like, I think the European Parliament definitely got it right when it's saying that the government, and I think that can extend to just people, have no business judging anyone else's religious beliefs. But there are certain aspects of cults that are in the public's interest to know about and to fight against. I don't know what the clear line is between a cult and a religion. I think it's one of those things where you just know it when you see it. You hear the different stories and you associate them with one or the other. And for me, the more I learn about the uh, Rajneesh movement, the more I'm convinced that they're a cult that was created to benefit one person. In this case, actually two people with Sheila being a second in command, so to speak. What about you? I agree. I do think it's a cult. So I'm on Merriam-Webster Dictionary just to get some definitions of a cult. So one is a religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious or a great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work, which to me, that that's them. I think because we think of like Jonestown, the Bop Comet people, I can't think of what they were called. The We often think of like the Heaven's Gate cult or Jonestown or like Love Has Won for like a modern example. And I think personally, I know I often associate cults with like harm being done to the followers. I don't necessarily... I think for some people, harm was being done in the Rajneeshis, but it wasn't, you know, like wide scale physical harm, psychological torture, brainwashing that we've seen in other groups. So that I think at first was why I was like, is it a cult? But going off of just like a basic definition of what a cult is, yes, they are a cult. And it's interesting to see, like you said, I felt the same way. Like the more I learned, the more I was like, yeah, this is for sure a cult. Maybe it's not like the most harmful, violent cult, although they were trying to assassinate people and like making people ill. (laughs) But I think definitely a cult. I agree about the European Parliament. I think they worded it very well and that it is an organization's duty to keep people protected and not take away any of their human rights, which is, again, something, a negative thing I think about cults or I associate with cults all the time. And it's interesting to see how it started as a non-religious movement, but it became a religion, which I do think is one of like a feature that people do associate with cults. I also found it interesting how the one person was saying how he thinks a lot of Westerners were drawn to it because they were spiritually illiterate. I think that's so interesting. And I mean, I I feel like people feel this way still. I think spiritual illiteracy is a really interesting way to put it and is probably what draws people to more Eastern religions or other 
you know, not just like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, more, what do they call it? Judeo-Christian religion. Religion and spirituality are different things. But a lot of people that were surveyed said that they wanted some type of deeper meaning in their life. And turning to religion or spirituality to find that is a very common thing for people. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And I also thought it was interesting about this group ego and kind of like this constructed identity, because that is what Rajneesh was talking about, or even just doing in these therapy sessions, like everyone was coming together at once. And I'm sure in that moment, everyone felt very connected with each other. And like it was a group identity, like individually, you're lost, but you're still you're part of us, you're part of this group, we're all experiencing this, like meditation, this transition together. So I think that's really interesting. There is in the Wild Wild Country documentary, there's video of some of these like group therapy sessions and meditation sessions, and they're really wild. Like people, people are getting all into it, the yelling, crying, screaming, laughing, everything you can think of. It's kind of like unsettling to watch, honestly. And if you watched it out of context, I it would be frightening for sure. <laughs> As we mentioned, the Rajneeshis brought about the first bioterror attack in the United States. A bioterrorism attack is the deliberate release of viruses, bacteria, or other germs, agents, used to cause illness or death in people, animals, or plants. These agents are typically found in nature, but it's possible that they could be changed to increase their ability to cause disease, make them resistant to current medicines, or to increase their ability to be spread into the environment. Under current United States law, bioagents, which have been declared by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services or the U.S. Department of Agriculture to have the, quote, potential to pose a severe threat to public health and safety, end quote, and are officially defined as, quote, unquote, select agents. Bioagents are broken into three categories. Category A are high priority agents that pose a risk to national security and can be easily transmitted and disseminated, resulting in high mortality, having potential major public health impact. They may cause public panic or require special action for public health preparedness. Examples of these include SARS, smallpox, and anthrax. Category B agents are moderately easy to disseminate and have low mortality rates. And category C agents are emerging pathogens that might be engineered for mass dissemination because of their availability, ease of production and dissemination, high mortality rate, or ability to cause a major health impact. Biological agents are attractive to terrorists because they are extremely difficult to detect and do not cause illness for several hours to several days. Bioterrorism may be favored because biological agents are relatively easy and inexpensive to obtain. They can be easily disseminated and can cause widespread fear and panic beyond the actual physical damage. Military leaders, however, have learned that as a military asset, bioterrorism has some important limitations. It's difficult to use a bioweapon in a way that only affects the enemy and not friendly forces. A biological weapon is useful to terrorists mainly as a method of creating mass panic and disruption to a state or a country. Access to knowledge and data is also increasingly available through the internet and criminals use hidden or anonymous streams of communication, such as the dark net, 
to buy, sell, and share data and communicate with each other. The damage caused by such an event could reach untold magnitude, causing widespread illness and death and instilling fear and panic on a global scale. Planning may involve the development of biological identification systems. Until recently, in the United States, most biological defense strategies have been geared towards protecting soldiers on the battlefield rather than ordinary people in cities. Financial cutbacks have limited the tracking of disease outbreaks. The best defense against bioterrorism is a strong public health system. In response to the threat of bioterrorism, Congress authorized the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, to coordinate efforts to upgrade national public health capacity to counter bioterrorism. Following this mandate, the CDC established the Bioterrorism Preparedness and Response Program in 1999. Under this program, Washington is developing the ability to detect, communicate, and respond to potential bioterrorism events. Here are a few notable cases of bioterrorism. In one of the earliest recorded instances of bioterrorism, Persian armies in the 6th century BC poisoned wells with a fungus that affected rye plants. During the American Civil War, it was reported that a Kentucky physician provided clothes exposed to smallpox and yellow fever to Union troops. The Japanese called Amshiriko, which we have an episode on, experimented with botulism toxin, Q fever, cholera, and anthrax. An attempt was also made at sourcing Ebola from Africa. Several attempts were made between 1990 and 1995, but they failed to cause any casualties due to non-vir violent strands and issues with delivery systems. Chemical attacks with sarin would end up killing around 20 people. In October 2001, bioterrorism in the United States became a reality again when four letters laced with anthrax were sent through the United States Postal Service. The attacks resulted in the illness of 22 people, the death of five, and fear and anxiety in millions of others. The cost of decontaminating offices that were exposed totaled over $23 million. So what are your thoughts on, you know, everything we just talked about, how bioterrorism can be used and some other notable cases of it? So I think bioterrorism is one of those things where you kind of have it on the back of your mind as something that could happen, but I don't think that it's something that really frightens the majority of people on an everyday basis. I think when most people think of like, what could be a global attack that, you know, hurts me, people still think of like nuclear strikes and, you know, terrorist attacks similar to like 9-11. It's one of those things where because of the limitations that we talked about, it's just not something that I think people necessarily fear as much, especially not now. I think that just disease in general, people are taking less seriously if you look at like the response to COVID. So yeah, bioterrorism goes right into that same bucket. I do think it's good that the CDC is at least trying to make sure that they would mitigate the threat. I think it's a shame that it's, you know, not funded in the way that it should be. But, you know, at least there's something there and hopefully they at least have some basic plans that they would be able to utilize in the case of uh, such an attack. 
When it comes to the cases of bioterrorism, what I find to be the most interesting about it is how time really influences the type of bioterrorism agents that, you know, individuals use, you know, so you go from, you know, the Persians that were using fungi to anthrax, which is definitely a separate thing. I didn't know about the Kentucky physician that was trying to expose uh, smallpox and yellow fever to Union troops. I'm definitely not surprised. That definitely sounds like what someone in the Confederacy would do. But it's interesting that even someone who wasn't necessarily a soldier in the war was still, you know, using bioterrorism to try to get the outcome that they wanted from that. We talked about Am Shariko. It's definitely an interesting case. And another call and, you know, in, an example of the damage that cults can do with bioterrorism when they put the vast resources that they have available to them towards that goal. What about you? I really didn't know much about bioterrorism going into it. Like, I think you worded it really well, like, at least how I feel that, like, you know, it's there and like, maybe it's in the back of your head, but like, it's not something you're thinking about constantly or like really seeing as a threat. Maybe more people were talking about it if or like, COVID and I don't know. I guess maybe that came into the the psyche a little more. It's interesting, like you said, to see how it has been used forever, basically in different ways. And it goes back to what we were saying too about I would love to just be a fly on the wall in this Rajneeshi in this meeting where they were like, yes, we're gonna go with the salmonella. Cause I'm sure they were I'm sure they weren't looking at themselves as like bioterrorists or even realizing like, hey, this might be considered the first bioterror attack in the United States. Like, look at us. They weren't doing that. And again, like, where did they even get this? I know they said we got it. They had gotten it in a lab from Seattle, I think. That's wild. And then the fact that they had like their own lab on the compound to like, study it and like test it out is so crazy too. I feel like as we move forward, like maybe we'll hear more about bioterrorism because I mean, it seems, it seems like a, a t- not an, I don't want to say an effective tool, but like we said, like there's a lot of reasons where a terrorist or an organization that just wants to do something evil or get noticed somehow why they would want to use some kind of biological agent to do that and get a message across or to do that. And like, no one even notices, but they know it's pretty freaky. Yeah. It was interesting for me to learn a little bit more about this and yet anthrax too. I mean, we could probably do an episode on that, but it's wild that like no one correct. No one was ever like caught for sending those letters. It's wild. So again, like kind of we're, we're, well, we're, what I'm saying, like we, if you're from the U S you remember this happening most likely. And whoever did this is just like sitting up somewhere knowing that they did it. And we have no idea. I don't know. It's one of those crimes where you would expect that the full weight of the federal government would be behind trying to figure out who did it. And the fact that they're not even close to that is definitely highly concerning. 
that wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Rajneesh movement. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week. As always, stay safe.